right, before I jump in to the sermon proper, I just, I've been, Austin prayed for a listening ear just, just now, once or twice in his prayer, and that's really what we've been praying for before the gathering, and, and I just have a special, we want to be, give us an ear, Lord, has been my, give me an ear, help me to hear, even as I'm preaching, to know where you're guiding us through this word, and, uh, but just really have, have sensed that, we were, as we were singing before, just before now, talking about the freedom that Christ has purchased, and that he is that freedom, but he's purchased freedom for us through his blood on the cross, and just a real sense there that I want to say these two things on that before I jumped into the sermon proper, and that is that I really sense that I, I, I want, and I, and I believe, I know the Lord wants, for those of you that know him, but I believe that one, he wants you who know him to discover more of the freedom that he has already purchased for you that's yours in him, to advance deeper into that. It's not through working harder. He's already purchased it for you. There's nothing, no, none of your works, they're all like filthy rags to him. But you are clothed in Christ Jesus if indeed you've trusted in him and you're his son or daughter and for you to know more of the freedom that he's purchased for you, to walk into that more by faith together as a people. And then secondly, if you don't know that freedom, if you don't know really what that means, I pray that you would come to know even today what that means and that you would step into that freedom and his name is Jesus. He's purchased it, purchased it for you and his arms are open, and he's saying, just come, come to me. He is the life that you're looking for. So I want to just issue that. I felt that pretty keenly as we were, as we were singing and I was praying. Um, so Robin and I were snuggling. We snuggle with our kids. Sometimes they want us to snuggle. They almost always want us to snuggle more than we can. You know, they want you to stay in the bed when you're putting them to bed at night. We have three kids, and our smallest one is Susu, and she's, the, she's a little mongrel. She's the one that'll really, even if you've come and like if, if we have a dinner party or we're training leaders or we have somebody over or whatever it is, which happens about half the time, uh, half of the nights at our house, we'll sometimes be quicker to do our routine. But our routine after the story time and the toothbrushing and the jammies is we at least pray a prayer over them, sing a song over them, and, um, and scratch their backs a little bit. But Susie will always, if you do it real quickly especially, she'll just be like, she'll pretend like, I think she's pretending. So pretend like she uh, hasn't gotten any. She'd be like, you didn't sing and you didn't pray. And I'm like, yes, I did both actually, you know, and she'd be like, get back here, you know. And so she'll usually, but sometimes we'll snuggle with them. And we were, Robin and I were both flanking her. I was on one side of Susu in her bed. She has a queen size bed and, and, and Robin was on the other. And she's a little five-year-old. And um, so she was, Susu was in the middle and I said, look, it's a mommy and daddy sandwich. And Robin corrected me. She's like, actually, the sandwich is whatever's in the middle. So if you have turkey in the middle, it's a turkey sandwich. And so she's like, it's a susu sandwich. And so we, we started laughing about the susu sandwich. Um, if that's the case, and it is, uh, I, what we see in this, this text that Austin just read is it's right after Peter preaches, 3,000 come to Christ in one day, believe on him and are saved. What we see is the first window, the first window into the first church here in these few verses. And what are they doing? How are they spending their time? Um, what we see, remember that Susu sandwich, what we see is a unity sandwich. Those verses that Austin read, I don't know if you noticed, I kind of felt it when he got into verses 44 and 45, which are right in the middle of this window in these seven verses. Uh, it really is majoring on how they shared everything in common, and it kind of got a little, we don't know as Americans like what to do with that. Uh, Stephen called it the Bernie Sanders passage this morning. It's just like, ah, you know, and you might be all for a socialistic approach to things economically. This isn't about that, but 
If you're not, this might make you really uncomfortable. But this, as a window into the first church, is a unity sandwich. Unity is so strong in the middle of this passage, in the, in the sort of heart or the bullseye, if this is a target passage, in the bullseye of this passage. So to take two words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a book he wrote, it's, it's a picture of life together. Everything they do is done together. The people are spending their time together. They're, they're physically uh, and spiritually together. They're of one mind, and they share everything that they have. And this is extra remarkable because think about what they just were. Think about who these people are, these 3,000 plus, 3,120, 3, if you want to, because there are about 120 that were up in the upper room praying, and now there are about 3,000 added to them. Think about these people. They were from all over the Mediterranean. They spoke a bunch of different languages. Remember, Peter was, and his, and his uh, the 120 were given the gift of tongues to preach the mighty works of God, the gospel, what God had just done in Jesus Christ for them to save them in the languages that they understood. So they, there are people of a bunch of different languages and there are people who just crucified Christ. And now they are saved as one body, joyful, filled with gladness and sharing everything that they have together. It's an amazing picture. But it's not just a susu sandwich. It's not just a unity sandwich. It's not just the unity that we see in the middle. It's actually, I just blipped through this week in preparation. Every single verse speaks to unity. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the same four things. That devotion means they really, they stuck together. Um, they shared it all. They did it all together. Verse 43, all came upon every soul. How? Because they were together seeing the same awesome things and God was manifest among them. Uh, verse 44, all were together and had all things in common. This is the sandwich bit. This is the meat in the middle. Verse 45, again, selling and sharing all to provide for each other. So that there wasn't a, need, a single need among them. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, eating together, and parting together. That's my translation. That's really what they were doing, celebrating what God had done in Christ and their new identity in him. And then verse 47, the last verse in this chapter, this glorious chapter, like Austin said, God added to their number daily, to their number meaning, to the total number meaning they were together and getting bigger constantly. Um, and like I said, not only that, but the core of this passage is where it's most pronounced, this unity it's unity. So in this life together, what the church should look like, let's, let's jump in and just, this isn't comprehensive. None of my sermons ever, ever are, um, but it's really what I feel the Lord had for us this morning. Um, so we're not going to get to it all, but um, really trying to unpack the core of it. J.I. Packer, a famous and very old theologian and writer, said, he wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how good his theological answers are. No, he didn't say that. Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And what is adoption? Adoption is not biologically being part of the family, but by intentionality from the parents. They choose you and they say, I want that one. You are now privileged with all the benefits of being part of our family, and you are now legally part of our family. This is what the scriptures clearly say. It's been called the jewel, 
the crown jewel of the Christian life, adoption. We're forgiven of our sins, but that's not, that's a means to an end. That's not the end. The end is being God's children, and he is our father. Um, why am I quoting Packer on adoption here in this text, this window into the first church? Because what we're looking at here, and the only way to understand why we see this kind of unity, it's not through like trying a lot harder. It's through an existential reality that's been created by the person of Jesus Christ. He has brought, he has made these people, these disparate people who just stood there and said, crucify him, may his blood be on our children. He has just made, he has just brought them into his family by faith in the person of Jesus Christ, his true and only son. He has conferred upon them sonship status. And so I just want to say to you too, right now, here and now, and hopefully I'll say it again before I finish, but whoever knows if I'm going to say what's on this manuscript or not, right? So I want to say it now. If you are here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, but being part of God's family, being brought into God's family, being forgiven of my sins, it can't be an option for me because I've done too much. I, I've, I've, I've sinned too much. I'm too far from God. I'm too estranged. You, you can't get worse than yelling that. You can't get worse than being an accomplice to the crucifixion of God's own son. And yet the very thing Peter said, that we see that here they, are, they have been made God's family. He says to them, what you meant for evil, God has used for your own salvation. Jesus and his salvation are bigger and more powerful than your sin. That is the gospel. So I want to I issue that to you in no uncertain terms right here and right now. Um, and then before we get into, and I'm just going to pop through the points here, but look at verse 44 to sort of give you a, a core into, again, into sort of how, what we're seeing here as a family, how this happens. Verse 44 says, right in the heart of this uh, Bernie Sanders territory, right in the heart of this, they're sharing everything together. Um, looks like socialism. Look at verse 44, and all who believed were together. This phrase, we're together, is a bit of a gloss. I've shared this before because the Greek is really peculiar, and if you translated it without any commentary, it would just be weird. But it, the, the text literally reads in the Greek, and all who believed were into the same, or were into one. Class, what is that saying? What is, what is the author of Acts, Luke, telling us here about these people? They're into one. Into one what? They're into one body. And whose body is that? The body of the crucified and risen and reigning Jesus Christ. That is what the church is. He is the head reigning, and we are his body here on earth, which is why, like Austin said, you see the book of Acts, his people doing just what he did when he was on this earth. There's a vital connection between the head and the body, and that connection is the Holy Spirit. Okay, they were brought into the very life of Christ, and that is our identity. And the more that we live into what we say we believe and what is true, the more this will happen among us. Is this for today? I believe with all my heart that it is. And so I want to have that be a prayer for us and something we lean into. Um, a hungry church, first of all, a hungry church. So as we think about this, this life together and this unity and this unity sandwich, let's just jump into this point briefly. A hungry church, they're spiritually hungry. I've mentioned this before as I preached this text less than a year ago and we're about to move into uncharted territory. Don't worry, if you have a photographic memory and never forget a thing and, I've, and you remember what I preached nine months ago and you're like, man, you're saying a lot of the same stuff. I apologize and don't worry, next week it's new territory, so Yay. But it bears repeating that this is a hungry church. They are spiritually hungry. It says they were devoted. They devoted themselves to, and that word just means 
they stuck close by or close at hand. They attached themselves to the teaching, the prayers, the fellowship, um, and the food, okay? It means that they persevered in these things. It wasn't, it wasn't ad hoc. It wasn't incidental. It wasn't occasional. It was, they shared life together like a, like a good family does. Um, but also, just to jump into something I've never mentioned before and want to spend a few minutes on, they were physically hungry. I don't just want to, the kingdom of God is eating and drinking, the kingdom of God is, is God's reign breaking into this life. Do you know how much, and I'm about to get into this, how much of Jesus' ministry was involved with just eating with people? So much in drinking with people, so much that they called him a glutton and a wine and a drunk. He never got drunk because getting drunk's a sin, but he did so much ministry at the table with so many sinners that they had so much accusation against them because the church is supposed to be spiritual, man. You're supposed to keep your hands clean. Jesus did anything but that. The kingdom of God breaks into this world. It breaks, into break, it breaks into baking cakes. It breaks into the mortgage industry. It breaks into law. It breaks into finance. It breaks into computers and making sure that your car can drive by itself. Insane. It, makes into, well, it breaks into anything, asset integrity management, and on and on and on I could go. Being at home with the kids, teaching them, loving them, being with your neighbors, everything. That's what the book of Acts is. It's the kingdom of God breaking into this world that was formerly run by the enemy, by Satan, and Christ has claimed it back, and he's reigning, and we are his people, spreading his kingdom on this earth. So, but there's a lot of food, y'all, physically hungry. They ate a ton. They, eating is mentioned three times in these six verses. The table is so important. Uh, this is one reason, again, that so much of Jesus' ministry took place around the table. Again, do you, see the, do you see the similarities? Jesus ate a ton in his ministry. It actually characterizes ministry, eating. Well, in the window into the first church, what do we see here? Eating characterizes their ministry. Wow. Why do you think we have parish as a sort of cornerstone, as it, as it were, a spine around which we, we operate? In every parish gathering, we share a meal. Why do you think that is? Is it because we're unspiritual? No. It's because everything good happens around the table. It's, because, it's the same reason that we go to table in a second after I finish preaching every week. Because, because the new heavens and the new earth are going to be consummated with a wedding feast to end all wedding feasts, with a banquet, okay? And we get taste of that now. And we get taste of that when we gather around the table together as a family and share and break bread, okay? So they ate a ton, Jesus ate a ton, so his body's eating a ton. In a meal with Jesus, Tim Chester says, Jesus was seriously into eating and drinking, so much so that his enemies accused him of doing it to excess. In Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and their scribes said to him, this is all the churchy people, the disciples of John the Baptist fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, you can see they kind of cocked their heads, right? but yours eat and drink, all right? So they're trying to shame the dude. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking a lot of his time. I'm still quoting from Chester. He was a party animal. That's not me, that's Chester. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship round a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Robert Karras writes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And again, this is one of the reasons that we say, if you want to know who we are, be part of a parish family. Get to know one another. Get to know one another around food and prayer and his word. It's what we do. It's who we are. We want to see people sucked into that life together. And we see that here, and we're seeing it, and we want to see more of it. And so we make that a prayer. 
Chester again, he says, if I pull books down, if I pull down books on mission and church planting from my shelves, I can read about contextualization. These are all really boring words, so just don't fall asleep for the next 10 seconds. Contextualization, evangelism, matrices, postmodern apologetics, and cultural hermeneutics. I can look at diagrams that tell me how people can be converted or discover the steps required to plant a church. It all sounds impressive, cutting edge and sophisticated. But this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. That was his plan. Robin, I'm quoting my wife here uh, from, yeah, I'm quoting her. I think she sent out a text. She's at a retreat right now, but I I read it. And she has me theologically proof and proofread her her text sometimes when she sends them out on Instagram or whatever you call that cyberspace thing she does. And um, it it was really profound. She said, that there's a re- she was talking about food and the part that food should have in our lives and in our ministries. And she said, there's a reason that the first sin had to do with food. And there's a reason that the first miracle had to do with, in this case, drink, wine, and food. Tons of, I mean, the wedding was feasting, right? The first sin and the first miracle both have to do with food. And what do we do every week to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us? We eat a meal together, Right? So this is why we do this, we believe in this, we want to be a hungry church, spiritually, physically, but we don't want to divide the two. Christ came to make all of life worship, all of life. All that's not sin is sacred. That's what Jesus Christ came to bring us into. Okay, so I want to say that if we're not regularly eating and drinking with one another, our neighbors, coworkers, and the lost, having them into our home, we're missing much of the work God has for us to do. I just want to say that plainly. I want, I want it to challenge us to actually change our schedules, to carve out, if we're, we're busy people, we're a frantic, harried, hectic people, to carve out time to actually share life together and to share it with those that God's put in our midst, okay? And that's, that's, I'm pointing to me first and foremost. Robin in the past, and I in the past year have, have just not prioritized this. Okay, so um, a hungry church. Secondly, a fearful church. Um, I wanna be briefer on this. A fearful church. I say fearful partly to spark your interest. I've, I've actually used this point before. Um, awful, the word is translated awe in, uh, in this text in, in the ESV, but an awful church just wouldn't, be, wouldn't sound very good. Um, I could have said an awe, an awe-filled church, but it's a fearful church because that's what the word really means. It's uh, the word phobos or phobos in the, uh, in the Greek. So it's translated awe, but it really means fear. But it's not the fear that we normally experience because we normally experience not the fear of God, but fear we fear men. Or we fear our work situation. Or we fear underperforming. Or what will they think of me? Or on and on it goes, right? That's, that's, a, that's a craven, sinful fear that I experience all the time. Um, but the fear of the Lord is clean. And it endures forever. And this is a holy fear of God. It's like, like Lewis said. He said, it's not like knowing that there's a tiger in the next room, but it's like if somebody tells you there's a spirit. There's a spirit in the next room. All of a sudden, there's a different kind of fear that fills you. There's a, there's a reality there that you don't fully understand, but that's, um, that grabs hold of you. And, and, and uh, to, to have God's spirit among us at work, doing things in and through us and saving people and performing signs and wonders through us and showing us awesome things, it's, that's what we desire. It's a, l- a large part of what we pray for this morning. Lord, we don't want to go through the motions ever, certainly not this morning. We want to encounter you. We want to 
know that you're here among us and we know that you are because of your promise, but we wanna sense you, we wanna meet with you, we wanna be made like you because this life is about adoption, it's about relationship, it's about knowing God and being with him face-to-face through the person of Jesus. So um, this is what they're experiencing. Um, this, they're filled with awe or fear, and it says many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Um, and I mentioned this book before, Brian Blount and his Putting Jesus on Display with Love and Power. He talks, what we see here, Peter has just been proclaiming Jesus. He's been telling of the mighty works of God, and they have as well. But then we see them showing the mighty works of God too. Uh, we see salvation, and we see, especially moving forward, healing and prophetic words and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, the, and his palpable presence among them. Um, and just, I think that so much of our, the way that a lot of us have been brought, been brought up and we've been brought up in the church is the tell ministry, but we forget the show part. It's show and tell. It's not just proclamation. It is proclamation, but it's proclamation and demonstration of the fact that the king has come to live with us. And he's done everything necessary for for us to be made children of God, okay? And so there's nothing more extraordinary, two things here. There's nothing more extraordinary about someone getting healed or a prophetic word being given to them that no one else would know and they fall on their faces than there is about someone actually being brought from death to life by the person of Jesus Christ, being saved. That is far more extraordinary. So we shouldn't be like saying, okay, I'm down with the whole, the front, the, the front part and the back part of this text, verse 41 and 47, where God saves, that should be happening in the church. But this whole awe and signs and wonders and prophetic words and healing and things like that, that's too much. That doesn't make any sense if we truly believe that when people get saved, it's the greatest miracle of all. And actually, Peter, uh, excuse me, Luke, who writes this, doesn't give us that option. He bundles them all together and says, this is what the early church looked like. And I think by extrapolation, it's prescriptive as well as descriptive. It's what the church through the ages in these last days until Christ returns ought to look like. Like his ministry, people getting saved and people getting set free as a demonstration of the fact that the king is here among us. Will we always be healed? No. Will people always get saved? No. But should we be pressing into what we see here and asking for it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, and also, the second thing I want to say here is that, so it's not more extraordinary for someone's leg to grow two inches or to get up out of a wheelchair or for a prophetic word to be spoken than it is for someone to get saved. But also, secondly, um, those things are that people might come to know the living God. That they, there might be an, a, um, a hunger created in them where there might not have been a hunger before. So um, if someone needs healing and you're in a Walmart with them, and, and we are all about being the body of Christ and a show and tell ministry, proclaiming Christ and also demonstrating the fact that he loves them. They might not care two figs for Jesus. There might not be any perceived need there. There might not be any openness. But, and Brian Blount tells tons of stories like this. We've started to experience this in our own congregation. Um, but when you, if you pray over them, they allow you to pray over them, you pray over them and they get up out of that wheelchair, all of a sudden, there's probably gonna be an extreme openness and interest in the person of Jesus Christ. How was I? So in other words, it doesn't, it doesn't stop with, you're healed, awesome. Here's my card, see you, bro. Like, no, no. Do you know that, how, how did this happen? This happened, and this is something that Brian Blount lives in over and over and over again. We see, and we see over and over again in the book of Acts. How did this happen? It happened because Christ <laughs> because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, because of who he is, because he died in your place. He came and lived the life that you should have lived but can't in your place. 
and he died the death on a Roman cross that we all deserve. And he's alive and he's reigning and he's in me and he loves you and he sent me to tell you that and to show you that. Do you wanna know more? Absolutely. And so a lot of time people end up coming to the Lord and knowing he cares about them through a demonstration ministry. That's why we do it. We do it because we see it in the scriptures and we do it because we wanna see people come to know the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it in our congregation and it's awesome. Lauren Baker had a testimony that she shared. I don't know if she shared this one or another one. No, she shared the, she shared the one in the DMV. She has so many these days, but, but she was reading Blount's book and um, having, a, having a doctor appointment and uh, she had a word for someone that she didn't even know existed in that person. It was their last day in the doctor's office. And it ends up that her blood pressure spiked at that moment. And she ended up sharing with a ton of people through prophetic words and just preaching Christ to them. And Austin came up to the office too and, and was sharing as well and mainly just listening and sitting back. But God opened up so many doors for her to share the gospel and share the love of Jesus Christ with those people. But I don't think it's an accident that her blood pressure spiked. And I don't think it's an accident kind of for the next three months, she was, I don't wanna say out of commission, but bedridden essentially. Like the enemy hates this, but I just wanna encourage us. That should be a perverse encouragement. Let us be a people who press in to all that God has for us and to all that we see here, okay? Brian Blount, again, he's, he, he has tons of stories. I have one here that I'm not gonna share. It's, it's awesome. Um, read the book. It's called Putting Jesus on Display with Love and Power. But he, he makes the point that the longest account of a one-on-one conversation that we have between Jesus and any single person, you know what it is? It's the, it's the account in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it seems here like, yes, he's the son of God, but he relied on the Holy Spirit just as we are too. He's, he was our model for ministry. And it looks like through the Holy Spirit, Jesus got a word of knowledge for this woman. And he said, that's right. This man that you're with now isn't your husband and you've had five husbands. And that really opens her up and sets her back on her heels because he still presses in in love. Knowing who she is, he presses in in love with her. Um, and this leads to a, not only her salvation, where she goes, he knows everything about me and he still loves me. Isn't that when the penny drops for us? When we wanna be known, but we're afraid to be known because of who we are inside? Because we all know we're a fraud. But God loves us as we are and takes us to where he wants us to be because of his love and his beauty and his mercy and compassion. And that's what he does with this woman. He knows that she goes, she goes into her village running. I was ashamed of my village before. So ashamed that I would draw water at, a, at an hour when no one, none of the other women would draw water because I know who I am. Come see a man who knows who I am and told me everything I did and still loves me. And the whole, essentially the whole village or a large part of the village got saved through this woman and through this word of knowledge that Jesus shared. That's why he did it. Tradition has it, Blount goes on to say, Christian tradition has it that she was baptized and renamed Fotini, which means enlightened one. She was, she was brought into light by Jesus. She was a missionary to Carthage in North Africa where many came to Christ. And then she uh, had a heart to see the evil emperor Nero, to see him, uh, so tradition has it, uh, hear the gospel. And so she ended up... Um, According to tradition, seeing Nero's daughter converted and a large part of his household, she was tortured and killed uh, by Nero, uh, or his command anyway, according to tradition, by being thrown down a dry well. Isn't that ironic? How the woman that Jesus met at the well ended up giving her life as a witness, um, being thrown down a dry well. Orthodox Christians honor her 
uh, along with the apostles. Not as an apostle, but they hold her in high esteem, Fotini, this woman. So all, the point there is, look at what came from Jesus walking in the gifts in a word of knowledge that he offers to us as his body, that he pours out the same spirit that he had uh, and that we now have. So I want to encourage us in that. Um, but notice that it's, um, it's out of holding to the regular rhythms of de- being devoted to teaching and the fellowship and the prayers that these signs and wonders come. It's not just signs and wonders. It's not just walking in the gifts. It's being together with one another and being devoted to these things together. Um, that these things, and again, I've, I've touched on this, but before going to a generous church, point three, um, you can't pick and choose according to this text. You can't, you can't pick and choose, okay, we want to see people saved daily. That happens in verse 41 at the beginning of the text. It happens at the end in verse 47. But the whole, like, having all things together and, um, and seeing awesome things happen, like, we think that was for the early church alone. Like, you can't, that's no, that's no fair. That's not good exegesis. That's not good reading. Um, we are called to say, this is the church. We want that, Lord. We have the same spirit. The same Christ was given for us. The same Christ is reigning. The same Christ is here now. It's his kingdom going forth. Lord, come and do this among us, okay? Um, so a generous church, point three, a generous church. Scary text, right? Communism. No. No. Um, this is not the states, or in this case, the church's stuff, but it's their stuff. Look at verse 44. It says, they sold their possessions. It, they were theirs, manifestly theirs. Not, there's no coercion here. There's a gladness and a generosity of spirit. Um, it's, it's volitional, not coerced. It's free. It's their possessions. What is the secret? Again, look at Look at verse 44. We've talked about it. Remember, this is life together. This is unity sandwich. Look at verse 44. Um, And all who believed were together. All who believed were together. And literally, like I said, it means all who believed were into the same. They were family. Existentially, their, their DNA had been changed. They had been made into one real family through the sacrifice and the life of Jesus Christ. Um, John Stott says, we need to allow ourselves to be challenged by this text. Again, verses 44 and 45 are at its heart. They are the center of the window into this first church. We can't get around them. We get around them to our peril if we don't let them confront us in our Western um, values. We can't let our Western American values trump biblical Christian values. Um, We have to let the Bible confront what our culture says we are and how we do things. So do you want me to uh, kind of prove this point to you? What if I told you to share all that you have with your son, daughter, or spouse? Would that seem, would that seem challenging? Would that seem scandalous? Would that rock you back on your heels? Of course not. You wouldn't be challenged by this because you already do that. Why do you do that? Because they're your family. You love them because they are your family. There's no question about that. And we all know families, healthy families that love each other, everything you have is theirs. Everything I have is my spouse's. Everything I have is my children's. It's easy for me to say everything I have is yours. All I have is yours. I vowed, I vowed that it is so. Um, this truth is hard but straightforward. If we, if we truly lived into what we say we believe in what is real, which is that God, through the person of Jesus Christ, makes us one body and a real family, 
we wouldn't find this scandalous. This is it. It's straightforward, but it hurts. But I pray that it could hurt so good because this is the path to true joy and gladness and happiness and fulfillment. And this is what Christ has called us to. Um, We are a family. We are a family. So, may this word change us. May it help us to release our grip on what is perceived as ours and help us to see what is ours as his and, and one another's. Um, okay. So, Lord, we just, this, in this third point, before I get to point four, the last point, I just, I pray that you would, you would help this truth to set us free, to know that all that you've given us is yours. We're stewards and we are a family. And Holy Spirit, the same spirit that this church had, would you come and help us to live this out more and more, even this week, Lord. And through it, would you save many. Finally, we see, fourth, fourthly and lastly, that this is a growing church. John Stott again. John Stott says, the body of Christ in Jerusalem multiplied 26 times in one day, from 120 to 3,000. 120. So uh, remembering the unity sandwich, if I stay with that theme, what we see in this text too is we see a unity sandwich bound by salvation bread, okay? I like calling it a salvation sandwich, but that's if the bread is the sandwich and apparently it's the meat, okay? We see a unity sandwich with the unity all throughout the text and in the middle holding this church together because of the fact that we've been made one through the, through the sacrifice of Christ. Um, he who, listen to me, he who was torn asunder, he who was, who was, in a sense, ripped from the Father's embrace, he who was um, cast aside and away from the Father's presence, that we might be brought near and that we might be made one, okay? This is a reality that characterizes us. Um, but within that reality, we see that this text is flanked by, this unity sandwich is flanked by salvation bread, Right? Um, it begins and ends with people getting saved. So, um, unity of disciples. We see it in this text, and we see it in, in research that's been done and in church history. Unity of disciples of Jesus Christ, sharing all things, being devoted one to another and to the teaching and to prayer. Um, unity of disciples of Jesus leads to people getting saved, Okay. So I mentioned this before, but um, Bob McNabb in a book on, called Spiritual Multiplication, he writes about two retreats that they had in Thailand. He was a missionary in Thailand. And he says, man, I learned a big lesson. He says, on the first, it wasn't even a retreat, but there was like a believer or two. And one of the believers was named Alm, A-L-M. She was Thai. And she didn't know Jesus at all, but she somehow ended up slipping into this group of all believers, mature believers walking with the Lord. And he's like, man, I don't know this is such a good idea because things are gonna be confusing to her. But it says that Alm was struck by how different everyone was. And she, she said, everyone is so warm and loving. This is at the end of their time, the end of the weekend. She said, everyone is so warm and loving. What's going on here? And he says, it was the John thirteen thirty five principle at work. Jesus said this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So she had this like incontrovertible 
unavoidable evidence in front of her and surrounding her all weekend of the reality of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, because she was just caught in this salvation sandwich, as it were, right? She was caught in this, around this group of people that loved Jesus, and she felt the environment, and it was different, and she, was just, she couldn't get away from believers, and she ended up getting saved, almost unintentionally, because she was just in this, it's very much the syndrome we see here in this first window. The second, he says, we had a retreat for 120 Buddhist college students, and we did all the retreat stuff. We made all the preparations. It was the best retreat ever, on, you know, according to the books. But the Thai pastor at the end, and, and really, it, was, it didn't really work, if you want to say that. Like, people didn't get saved. It wasn't that effective. Although, other things could have happened, right? And I'm sure they did. But at the end of the, uh, the time, the pa- Thai pastor said, this was a good retreat, but it would have been better if you didn't have as many lost people here. They were, the Christians were majorly outnumbered. They were majorly outnumbered, okay? And so that's actually what we see here in this text is that people are getting sucked into this environment where these Christians are sharing everything and devoted to one another, and day by day, God is just adding to their number. And that's what we wanna see happen as we share life together as God's family. Justin says it best, we have to start running even more like a pack of dogs. We have to start running even more like a pack of dogs, right? And just, what does that mean? It's just, let's run like a pack of dogs. Everything we do, let's do it together. Let's do it together. And people will, we will see people's lives change. And we're already seeing that. We will see people get saved um, from weekly prayer and sharing a meal ahead of time. And you might've been wondering if you don't have any info on the weekly prayer thing on Tuesday nights, why is it from 5.30 to 8? Like, that's a long time to pray. From 5.30 to 7, there's just a meal, and you can come if you want to, and it's great. And then from 7 to 8, we pray, okay? So that, our parish family is gathering together weekly and then beyond that as well and just going to the grocery store together and sharing life together and being in each other's homes and surrounding our neighbors. Our anchor groups of, you know, three to five people who are confessing sin, studying the scriptures, praying together, sharing life together, really knowing each other. Um, Bottom line, we must gaze at Christ and run together. So verses 39 and 47, the Lord called to himself those who were being saved, verse 39, and then he added to their number day by day those who are being saved in verse 47. He does it. He saved. He saves. It's like um, something passing by a massive object, like a black hole, right? And if the, even light gets too close, there's no escaping it. It gets sucked in. That's the kind of the syndrome that we see here. Um, I want to finish with a bit on the Moravians. Um, the Moravian who came out of Europe and Count Zinzendorf in the, in the 18th century, they were a, a movement of really of prayer and of devotion to the Lord and they shared what they had together. And I just want to finish with this reminder. The Moravians had learned that the secret of loving the souls of men was, was found in loving the Savior of men. On October 8, 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for the Danish West Indies on board were the first two Moravian missionaries, John Leonard Dober, a potter, and David Nishman, a carpenter. Both were skilled speakers and ready to sell themselves into slavery. I'm gonna read that again. Both were skilled speakers and ready to sell themselves into slavery. Why? To reach the slaves of the West Indies. And as the ship passed, slipped away, they lifted up a cry that would one day become the rallying call for all Moravian missionaries May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And here's the point. The Moravians' passion for souls and to see all that we've been describing happen was surpassed only by their passion 
for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to know him and to be known by him, okay? The fact that as Peter preached right before this, what does this life of the church, this life together come out of? Knowing that he has just poured out his very self into our hearts because we just crucified him 50 days ago. And he loved us so much that he purposefully determined to use that to save us. That's the heart of God for us. Let us be a people who fixate on that, not on what should the church look like. Forget that. Forget trying to muscle this up. It'll never happen. You'll wear out. You'll be depleted. You'll feel like a failure. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the lover of our souls who gave himself up for us and who was torn apart that we might be made one, we have him. We have his spirit. We are his same body. He is reigning and he will return. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being our true father in heaven, of whom whom even the best earthly father is but a shadow here, and for giving us your precious son that you have always loved with pure, unalloyed love. And we have that same love because you treated him as if he were us and rejected him. And he became our sin so that we could be brought into your family. We, Lord, fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus and continue to work through us in mighty ways that people might come to know you in the freedom that you died to bring us. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.